Okay, hey everybody. It is good to be back with you. I missed last week. I had the plague or something, I don't know. Um, but it's okay, they have a pill for that now, no. Um, boy, it's been a rough, what, month? A little more than a month, I've had three colds and the flu. So anyway, it's good to be back to normal, I think. Back to the book of Ezekiel, because that's what we're really after, right? Uh, so if you want to grab your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel. We're going to be in chapter 12 today. We're going to do all of um, chapter 12. Just to begin, though, because um, it's been a handful of weeks, because <coughs> we had, uh, what, Easter, and then I was sick, and so we haven't been in Ezekiel in a little while. Let me just recap the last part we were in. So in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel is sitting in his house, and um, he has this vision. And in the vision, uh, this angel guy comes, and one of my favorite parts of Ezekiel pulls him by his hair, picks him up by his hair, and transports him over to Jerusalem in this vision. And uh, he, he gets to the temple. And in the temple, uh, he sees the glory of God and all this stuff, and there's a bunch of angels, and all sorts of stuff is happening. And what he sees, though, is the people of God and the leaders of the people and what are they doing? They're worshiping a bunch of different idols in God's house, right? This is supposed to be the place where Yahweh God is worshiped, and they're not doing that. They're worshiping the gods of the Babylonians because they think they might need those guys helping a little bit. And then in one other part of the temple, they're worshiping the Egyptian gods because they think they might need those guys' help. And so what happens is God tells, he has this angelic judgment hit squad of angels of death or whatever, and in the vision, they go around and they mark off the people who are upset by what's happening in the temple, and then everybody else, they club them to death with these war hammer things, and Ezekiel is very disturbed by this vision. He sees what's happening, and he says, God, how can you do this? Because if you kill all these people in Jerusalem, who's going to be the remnant? Who's going to be the ones left so that you can fulfill your promise to bring the Messiah. If you kill everybody, who's, who's it going to be? Because these are the Jerusalem, we're in exile, we're being punished, but these are the good guys. They're in Jerusalem still. And the whole point of this last big chunk of Ezekiel is God is trying to tell the people in exile and the people in Jerusalem through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and some different prophets that just because the people in Jerusalem haven't been judged yet doesn't mean they're not going to be. And where this happens in the history of God's people is the Babylonian exile is a word we use that just kind of covers a big time period. But what really happened is there were three different exiles, three different times when the Babylonians swooped in and took people captive and brought them to Babylon. At this point in the story, it's happened twice, but it hasn't happened the third time. And the third time is the biggie. The third time is when they burn the city down, they destroy the temple, and they kill almost everybody, and the few people who survive, they take them into captivity. And so what God says to Ezekiel in this temple vision from chapter 8 to 11 is, you think that those guys in Jerusalem are the good guys because they haven't been destroyed yet, or they haven't been judged, but that's only yet. He says, they're not the remnant. You guys in exile, you guys are the remnant. You're the ones that I'm preserving so that the, the Messiah can happen. And so today, we're just kind of picking up more prophecy about this exact same thing. So follow along with me. We'll begin here um, in verse 1 of chapter 12. The word of the I am came to me, which means whenever he says this, it means we're starting kind of a new section, a new prophecy. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the I am, says to me, comes to me, verse 2, son of man, you are living among a rebellious house. So you can imagine after the message of 8 through 11, the exiles the ones in Babylon, were feeling a little bit better. Great, we're the good guys then, right? God said he's going to judge those guys and we're the remnant. That means God loves us the mostest, right? Ezekiel says, wait, hold on, no, 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 right? Uh-uh, <clears throat> that's not what's going on here. You're just as rebellious, you're just as sinful as those people in Jerusalem. It's just God has to save somebody to fulfill his promises, so he says, you're living among a rebellious house, and then he describes them. They have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but they do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. 
blindness and deafness in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, it's sort of a picture that these prophets use of disobedience. But it's worse because the way Ezekiel describes it is not they're blind and deaf, and that's why they don't hear. That's why they don't see. He says they have ears to hear, right? Or, yeah, ears to hear, eyes to see. See, the, the eyes work, the ears work. They're just ignoring. It's a willful blindness, a willful deafness. It's a willful rebellion that as God tells them messages, it just, it just bounces right off. It's like, have you ever been in one of those conversations where the person's not listening to you at all, and they're just waiting for you to finish so that they can say something, and everything you say is just, is just bouncing off of them? And there's a really good Seinfeld episode where he's sitting with his childhood best friend, and Seinfeld's just making up all this stuff, and the guy's not listening to anything he says. That's kind of what the people of God are doing here. Everything God says, it just bounces off of them. And so it looks like these exiles uh, still aren't getting the message that Ezekiel is trying to pass along, this message that Ezekiel is bringing. So what does he do? Well, what does Ezekiel always do when he has the message to pass along? For some reason, and we talked about this earlier, this guy loves skits. I don't know. I, I said this when we were talking about uh, chapters, what was it, four, I think, and five and on. Um, <clears throat> I was the youth pastor that made sure my kids in youth group, when I was a youth pastor, never saw a single skit ever because I hate skits, and I don't understand why people do skits in church. I guess it's biblical, though, because Ezekiel keeps doing this. So we've already had, okay, I didn't write this down. I think there were like seven of them, six or seven, and now we're going to keep going. More skits that Ezekiel is going to do for some reason. Uh, verse 3, here's the first one. Pack your bags. Now you, son of man, get your bags ready for exile and go into exile in their sight during the day. You will go into exile from your place to another place while they watch. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Okay, so Izzy and Heaven, they play this game. They pack up all their stuff into their Disney suitcases and backpacks, and they come in. Melissa knows what I'm talking about. They come into the living room, and they say, okay, bye. We're going to, and they make up somewhere, and then they pretend to walk off. Now, do they actually go anywhere? No, they never leave the apartment right, because they know they'd be in a lot of trouble if they left the apartment. But they play this game. It's very obvious they're pretending to go somewhere. This is what Ezekiel is commanded to do. It says right there in the Hebrew, it says, pretend to be Izzy in heaven and pack up your stuff and go. Play this game. Pack your bags and pretend like you're leaving for exile and probably make a big show of it, you know, big exaggerated steps, the whole thing. Verse 4, during the day, bring out your bags like an exile's bags when they, while they look on. In the evening, Go out of their sight like those going into exile. As they watch, dig through the wall and take the bags through it. And while they look on, lift the bags to your shoulder and take them out in the dark. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So he's supposed to do this. He's supposed to be real dramatic, make a big show of it. Dig through the wall of your house. Remember, they lived in these little mud huts. Dig a hole through the wall to show the terror of what it's going to be like to try to escape. Um, <clears throat> he says, um, because I have uh, cover your eyes so like you don't know where you're going. It's a picture of you don't know where you're going. Because when the people were captured, I think they might have assumed they were heading to Babylon, but I'm guessing the Babylonians didn't tell them exactly where they were going. And he says, make a big show of it because you're a living picture of what is going to happen to the people in Jerusalem when the city falls to the Babylonians. Verse 7, keep going. So I did just as I was commanded in the daytime. I brought out my bags like an exile's bags. In the evening, I dug through the wall by hand. I took them out in the dark, carrying them on my shoulder in their sight. Now, by this time, more than a year has passed since Ezekiel began his public ministry. Remember, Ezekiel is one of the very few books that we know exactly when all this stuff happened because he puts dates at the beginning of a lot of this stuff. And we've seen, uh, so we know it's been about a year. We've seen the elders now in the last vision, they came to him for a word from Yahweh. What that means is uh, he's a, I don't know if popular is the right word because I don't think anybody likes his message, but people are starting to get the idea that Ezekiel is a real prophet. And everybody watched him do the skit where he laid on his side for 300 and something days and he measured out his food and he only ate a little bit. And remember, he built a little Lego Jerusalem and then he sieged it with these other things, you know, his show was becoming like an attraction. Remember, they didn't have TV. There's nothing to do. Let's go watch this prophet and see what this idiot's going to do next, you know? There's probably a lot of that going on here. And so you can imagine the intrigue when he starts this whole skit. 
every day he gets up, he takes his bags, and he goes for a walk, and he digs a hole, and he covers, you know, through his house, he crawls out of it with his bags, and then he walks around with his hand over his eyes like this, walking into stuff, and uh, he does this all day, and then he goes inside. So what does it all mean is probably what they're wondering. That's the next part. He explains it. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, hasn't the house of Israel, uh, that rebellious house, asked you, what are you doing? So he does all these skits and all, uh, he does this skit, he does this whole production, and the people show up to him and they say, what are you doing? They don't get it. Nobody saw this skit. Nobody saw, it seems like, Ezekiel walking around with his bags, walking around with his stuff, and then said, oh, I know what's going on. This is the exile stuff he told us about earlier. This is him acting out what's going to happen to the people in Jerusalem. Nobody said that. They flat out had no idea what's going on. So they just asked him, what are you doing? What are you, what are you talking, or like, what's this skit mean? You know what this reminds me a lot of? <coughs> the disciples, or me in math class when I was in high school, right? But we'll say the disciples. They're very hard-hearted. Jesus would do this whole thing. All right, here's the seeds. There's these three kinds of seeds, right? There's the one that falls in, you know. And the disciples, while they're in front of everybody, oh, yeah, Jesus knows what you know. They're nodding along. And then the crowd leaves, and the disciples, so, hey, Jesus, can I just ask one question? Yeah, sure, what's going on? What are you talking about, right? They have no idea. It's the same thing here. They ask Ezekiel, just like the disciples, what are you talking about? Verse 10, say to them, this is what the I am says. This pronouncement concerns the prince, in, uh, the prince in Jerusalem and the whole house of Israel living there. So now Ezekiel moves from acting to speaking. And you can almost hear the exasperation in his voice while he's giving this explanation. But also, it's really interesting. Remember, he only, he's gone mute. Ezekiel, at the beginning, God said, you're only going to talk when I tell you to say something. So everything else, his whole life, he doesn't talk. He doesn't order at a restaurant. He does, you know, whatever it is, he doesn't talk to his wife. He doesn't talk to them at all. It's only when he has a word from the Lord. So in his raspy voice that he never uses anymore, he says, you should know what this is all about. This is the judgment that's coming to Jerusalem. Just like, by the way, I've been talking about for a year. I've been, you know, I've been doing, how do you guys not get it yet? Is the real question. How did they not kind of know what he was talking about? Verse 11, you are to say, I'm a sign for you. Just as I have done, it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will lift his bags to his shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He will cover his face so he cannot see the land with his eyes. But I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, and he will die there. Now, it's interesting. Um... The, remember the situation we've already talked about a little bit with the king in Jerusalem. The real king, uh, Jehoiachin, has been taken captive and is already in Babylon. And the puppet king that Nebuchadnezzar set up is that guy's uncle. So there's a king, the real king is living in Babylon in exile. Then there's the puppet king in Jerusalem. His name's Zedekiah. Ezekiel doesn't like him at all and never calls him a king in the whole book of Ezekiel. He always calls him the prince which was kind of a way to be like, mm, he's not really the king. It's a way to say he's not the real king. And this part of the prophecy is about him. He says they're going to drag him out to Babylon, and he's not going to see it. Like the whole covering the eyes thing kind of had a double meaning. Um, because what happens to Zedekiah, and we've, I've said this before in the book of Ezekiel, well, in, while we've been studying Ezekiel together, Zedekiah, when the city falls, he tries to make a run for it. <clears throat> and he gets outside the city walls, and then the Babylonians catch up to him, and they capture him. And then they take him, and they take all of his sons, and they kill all of his kids in front of him, and then they poke his eyes out so that that was the last thing that he ever saw. Now, that hasn't happened yet when Ezekiel's writing this. So Ezekiel here is prophesying, when this guy shows up in Babylon, he's not going to see anything. And nobody probably knew exactly what that meant, but this prophecy ended up being exactly right. But at least... The king still has his friends, right? No, look at verse 14. I will scatter all the attendants who surround him and all his troops to every direction of the wind, and I will draw a sword to chase after them. Okay, never mind. Maybe his, his friends are also going to desert him. Um, the king's going to get captured. All his buddies are going to get scattered. Verse 15. Why, though? 
then they will know that I am the I am, that I am Yahweh, when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine, plague, so that among the nations, uh, so that among the nations where they go, they can tell about all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the I am, that I am Yahweh. This is the point. They will know. He says it in verse 15 uh, and at the end of 16. This part is bracketed by that. The whole point is uh, of this judgment and all this stuff that we're reading in Ezekiel, it seems very harsh. The whole point is so that his people will know that he is God, right? That he is the Lord. Um, this, is, this phrase shows up, I don't remember. I, I said it at the beginning in one of the sermons, 70-something times in the book of Ezekiel. Um, this is the point. He says it twice in these two verses. Um, the point is, I need them to know who I am. My people have forgotten me, and I need them to know. All right, now the people still don't seem to get it. So what does Ezekiel do every time the people don't get it? He does another skit. This guy in the skits, man, I'm telling you. Okay, verse 17. Then the word of the I am came to me. Son of man, eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with anxious shaking. Uh, okay, I've done some weird stuff at the guidance of the Lord, right? I didn't really want to be a pastor. That happened. Uh, we, you know, what? Oh, some weird stuff. We let these two college kids live with us for a year and a half, you know, with me and Melissa, uh, plant a church, right? I've done some weird stuff, but man, I'm glad I'm not Ezekiel, because this guy's got asked to do some very weird, odd stuff. Look at what God tells him to do in this skit. Every time you eat, pretend like you're really anxious, freaked out, you're scared. I need you to tremble and shake so that everybody sees. You know this, like, um, do you remember in The Wizard of Oz how what a terrible actor the guy that played the scarecrow was? And like the way overacting you know what I mean? Okay, that's what I picture here. Every time you eat, I need you to pretend like that guy that can't act who played the scarecrow. Ooh, you know, make a whole scene of it and eat your food uh, like you're really, you know, have you ever actually been anxious enough or scared where you're shaking? He's saying, do that, pretend to do that. And so, oh wait, maybe it's not the scarecrow. It's the lion that I'm thinking of. It's the lion, that guy. He stinks, right? It's still a good movie, but whatever. Um, okay, so he says, do this. I need you to really overact and look like an idiot every time you're trying to eat. Verse 19. Then say to the people of the land, this is what the I am says about the residents of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. They will eat their bread with anxiety, drink their water with dread, for their land will be stripped of everything because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited cities will be destroyed. The land will become dreadful. And then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the I am. It's a very simple explanation to this skit, is when the Babylonian army comes to Jerusalem, this is how the people are going to eat. They're going to shake, and they're going to be terrified because of what's about to happen to them. But even after all that Ezekiel has done, all these different skits, I, that might be the ninth or tenth one, I don't know, all the teaching he's done, all the prophecy he's given, right? we're already in chapter 12. There's a lot of stuff he's talked about the fall of Jerusalem. The people still don't seem to get it. Look at verse 21. Again, the word of the I am came to me. Son of man, what is this proverb your people, you people have about the land of Israel which goes? The days keep passing by and every vision fails. So the proverb is simple. Basically what it means is this. They have this proverb that goes, Ezekiel keeps warning us about stuff that never happens. Right? He keeps predicting well, there's even a part in um, the Pentateuch where God says, look, let me tell you how to understand if there's somebody's a real prophet. He predicts the future. If the future happens, then he's a real prophet. And if it doesn't happen, like he says, then he's not a real prophet. And so what's happening here is the people are trying to, they don't like the message that Ezekiel is bringing. The more popular message of the day was God's going to save his people. He'll never let Jerusalem fall. And Ezekiel keeps saying, no, he's going to let it fall. And Jeremiah keeps saying, no, right? It's going to fall. The city is going to fall, and Babylon is going to destroy it. And so the people are saying now, well, it's been a couple of years already. Why hasn't the city fallen? Maybe Ezekiel is not a real prophet. But verse 23, therefore, say to them, this is what the I am says, I will put a stop to this proverb, and they will not use it again. The people's hearts are so hard. They keep hearing the message of God, and instead of saying, what do we do about this? They just go, nah, I don't like that. That can't possibly be true. And so what God says is, I'm going to put a stop to that. You're going to eat these words. 
But say to them, the rest of verse 23, the days have arrived as well as the fulfillment of every vision, for there will no longer be any false vision or flattery, divination, uh, flattering divination within the house of Israel. But I, the I am, will speak whatever message I will speak, and it will be done. It will no longer be delayed, for in your days, that's important, in your days, rebellious house, I will speak a message and bring it to pass. This is the declaration of the I am. So the people were littered, and we're going to talk about this uh, next time, littered with these false prophets. And um, basically, God tells Ezekiel, go tell the people, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen in your days. Look at the timing, verse 26. The word of the I am came to me. Son of man, notice that the house of Israel is saying, so here's another uh, proverb. The vision that he sees concerning many years from now, he prophesies about distant times. So it seems like the people hear the message of Ezekiel and go, okay, well, maybe it is going to happen, but I'm sure it's really far away in the future. The ability of the hard heart of mankind to completely change the narrative in our lives is amazing. It's crazy how good we are at saying to God, you know, no way, or, well, yeah, but, you know, trying to explain away something that God is telling us. That's what the people here are doing. They have this hard heart, and they don't like the message that God is not going to protect the city of Jerusalem. And so they say, well, okay, maybe that's going to happen, but if it does, it's going to be really far, really far down the road. Therefore, verse 28, say to them, because of that proverb, that it's going to happen down the road. This is what the I am says. None of my words will be delayed any longer. The message I speak will be fulfilled. This is the declaration of the I am, of Yahweh God. The last date we're given in the book of Ezekiel was at the beginning of chapter 8, and that date was September 592 B.C. Right, you guys remember back then, the good old days, 592 B.C.? Um, well, Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem happens in 586 B.C. That's just six years after he gives this prophecy. So when God says this is really about to happen, he means it. This is about to happen in your lifetime. It's not, it's not a distant prophecy. This is going to happen soon. And that's how chapter 12 ends. Now, there's a handful of ways we could go about this chapter, and we could talk about this stuff. But there's one big question that I kept thinking about as I read this text. Nothing in chapter 12 was new information. Everything in chapter 12 is just a new way to say something he's already said now four or five different times. So why does he go into this even more? Why are there more skits? He already had six or seven of them in chapters four and five, four or five, what was it, six and seven. He was doing all those skits, right? Why is this part of Ezekiel so repetitive? God tells the people, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. The people go, no, you're not. And God says, yes, I am. And then he says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. People go, no, you're not. And he says, yes, I am. And we do that for 12 chapters, right? Why? Why the repetition? And I think the answer is because of the people's hard hearts, right? Look at ver- uh, jumping back to the last chapter um, in Ezekiel uh, 11, uh, verse 19. It says this. This is God giving a promise. And he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. This is the key. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, that's interesting. What he says is, I'm going to take out the heart of stone that these people have and then replace it with a heart, of, like a living, breathing heart. He flat out says it. God tells the people, right now, up to this point, you guys are hard-hearted. You have a heart of stone. And then in verse 2 of the chapter we just read, he says, look, they have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but they do not hear. Right? These people don't get it. They're willfully ignoring the message of God. And then right after this verse, the whole chapter we just read, he goes on to repeat things that he's already said because their hard hearts need to hear it again. Think about how hard the hearts of these people really were. Think about the story so far. God sent these people into exile twice already. So there was the first wave of people went into exile from the city of Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar came through again, took another group of people. That was Ezekiel and Daniel and all the people, the king, and the people who were in exile now. He took the biggest group was that second group. 
he took them into exile. And then he sends a prophet, and he says, you know what? I'm going to do it a third time. I'm going to do the rest. I'm going to send the city of Jerusalem into exile, just like I sent you guys. And everybody looked at this prophet and went, yeah, probably not. God would never do that. Even though he had literally just did it to them. They said God would never send his people to exile. From exile, they're saying this, that God would never do this. Do you understand how dumb you have to be to take that position? Right? And so God gives Ezekiel this vision of the temple and idolatry, and he shows them why this judgment was coming for Jerusalem. And he gives them these these skits, build the Legos and lay on your side and eat the crap food. You remember that? And then, uh, you know, do all this stuff and skits over and over and over again because the people are so dumb, because the people's hearts are so hard that they don't want to hear. They can't hear what they don't want to hear, right? Their ears work, but they're deaf. Their eyes work, but they're blind. And this has always been the pattern, right? God tells his people, he tells us one thing, and then we look at God and we go, yeah, but mm, I don't know. I don't know about that. Think about it. Eve and the serpent, the very beginning of the hard, hard, hard hearts of humanity. Right? This is what happens. The serpent comes up to Eve and goes, yeah, did God really say that? And she goes, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, maybe he didn't. Right? Maybe that's not what he really meant. This is how we started in sin. Or think of Job, you know, the book of Job, where all this bad stuff happens to Job. And then he has these idiot friends who show up. And his idiot friends show up, and they give him all this terrible advice. And all of their terrible advice goes like this. Yeah, I know you think you know how God works, but mm, that's not really how it works. And they just go on giving him all this false advice about the way the universe works and the way that God's justice works for, like, 30-something chapters the whole book of Job is just like, I don't know, it's like reading a Joel Osteen book. It is just filled with bad advice. Um, or Isaac. You know the story of Isaac, right? So Abraham has Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac. And then Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca. And God tells Rebecca, hey, you know you're pregnant. It's going to be twins, but here's what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. So we're going to do this backwards. Normally it's the older is the more important. But actually, with Esau and Jacob, the younger is going to be the one that the promise goes through him and his family. And so when Isaac <coughs> gets old, it comes time to bless his kids, you know, to give out his blessing. And what does he do? Normally, the blessing would happen in a big public kind of spectacle where everybody would come around. They would have a banquet and there'd be a party. And then Isaac's supposed to get up and he knows that Jacob is supposed to be the one who receives the blessing. And he knows he's supposed to have a party and get up and bless Jacob in front of everybody. But he doesn't like Jacob, right? Jacob's a mama's boy. Jacob, you know, he likes to sit inside and knit or whatever, I'm guessing. Uh, Esau, he was the manly man, right? He, was, he had camo and a truck and he liked to shoot things. And, you know, Isaac really liked him. And so what, he didn't want to bless the younger one. And so what does he do? He, he tries to bless. It's a long story. He ends up, Jacob ends up stealing the blessing. But Isaac's plan is, I'm going to do this in private, at my bedside, with nobody else around. He says to God, yeah, I know you said Jacob, but that's not what I'm going to do. Right? I'm going to do this backwards. Or David. Right? Think of David, a man after God's own heart. He opens up his Bible, and he reads from the Pentateuch. Can you know, don't have a bunch of different wives. And David was like, yeah, but here, uh, actually, I have a better idea. What I'm going to do is have a ton of wives, and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Right? He looks at God's wisdom, and he says, yeah, but no. Or Solomon fell into that same trap. Solomon's like the wisest dude of all time. If anybody should have got it right, it was Solomon. God says, follow me only. Right? That's the first two commandments. Right? I'm the only God. No idols, just me. And Solomon goes, yeah, but mm, no. <laughs> I'm going to worship all these other gods. I'm going to bring all these other gods into the equation. He moves away from God. Or Jonah is the most famous one of these examples. God says to Jonah, hey, you know how you hate the Assyrians, the people that live in Nineveh? And Jonah goes, yeah, I hate those guys so much, almost as much as I hate Dodger fans, right? That's what, paraphrase, that's what Jonah says. 
And God says, I need you to go and tell the Dodger fans, I mean the Ninevites, that they even can be saved. And Jonah goes, nah. He gets on a boat and he goes the opposite direction. Right? Instead of going to LA to tell the Dodger fans, he gets on a boat and he heads to Alaska. Right? He looks at God's plan and he goes, yeah, no. Even at the end of that book, God saves the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, well, that was stupid. I don't like you anymore. That was not, that's not what I would have done. And he starts pouting and he does that thing where kids stomp their feet. Mm. You know, and that's how the book of Jonah ends. Right? This is what we do. I'm sure if I sat down with all you at coffee, we could come up with examples from your own life where God said, hey, this is how it works. Through scripture, right? through teaching, through the encouragement of somebody in church. And you looked at the plan of God. You looked at the wisdom of God and you went, nah, I, I don't think so. That's not, that's not for me. So what's the... This is how we are. This is how we're wired. I'm wired this way. You're wired this way. We're all wired this way. Our natural inclination is not to look at the wisdom of God and go, hey, that's pretty cool. Our natural inclination is to go, no, I don't think so. How do we get out of that trap, though? How do we get out of that? How do we move from being that hard heart kind of person to being the kind of person that he talks about in Ezekiel? The new, I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. To answer that question, I want to talk about church for a minute, okay? There's no magic formula. Here's the magic formula, actually. It's go to church. Um, most of us have never thought about the way we, we've, a lot of us have gone to church for years and years. Some of us, maybe just a few years less. A bit like me, I've been going to church my whole life, basically. Most of my life at the beginning, anyway, I didn't believe any of it, but I still went to church, right? My family went to church. And I never really thought much about the way that church works. What happens on a Sunday? What is it that we actually do here? Uh, most evangelicals, most people that go to churches like ours, also have never really thought about what we do in church. Um, but most evangelical churches look very similar. Let me tell you how it goes, okay? We don't do it exactly like this, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But if you've been to kind of one of those bigger, more put-together churches, right, uh, this is how it works. You show up, right? And they, they dim the lights, and they turn on the fog machines. Okay, they don't have to have fog machines, but you can imagine there's the fog machines, right? And uh, the lasers, you know. And the first song is big, right? The first song is energetic. Everybody stands up, and everybody's clapping, and it really gets your, the blood flowing, you know, and you're getting excited. And then the second song, the worship leader, in the back, the, the, the guy on the keyboards, he's playing that like uh, space music, you know what I mean? Like the ambient fills the space. And the worship leader prays, and then he hits the, you know it's every worship leader's favorite chord? G-sus, get it? Plays that G-sus. And, uh, and then, oh, this is a soft song. And then the second song, it really hits you in the feels, you know what I mean? It really touches your soul. And then the third song, there's always a third song. We only do two here. But the third song is the obscure song nobody's ever heard, but it's on the worship leader's new CD, and you can buy it at the bookstore in the back, right? Okay, and then, <laughs> and then there's a prayer. Somebody gets up and prays, and then they do the announcements, and then there's some kind of a sermon. Uh, and a lot of the sermons now, you ever notice this? They don't do pulpits anymore. There's like the, the table from the bar. You know what I mean? What's that standing table from the bar? Okay, so there's no notes, and the guy, he's very relatable. You know what I mean? And he does this a lot. And you're like, whoa, this guy's so relatable. Right? And then he prays, and then you do communion, and then there's some sort of a, a closing song. And most evangelical churches have some service that's very similar to that, right? Everybody's been to that service I just described, right? We've all been to that church. Um, but also, the way that all those churches work, the reason we do it like that is just because that's how the other ones do it. We don't think about what it is we're hoping to do with a Sunday. R.C. Sproul says this. Okay, you guys know R.C., the late, great R.C.? He said, there's no doubt that God wants his worship to have form. So the question is whether is not whether we will have a liturgy or not. The issue 
is whether the liturgy is biblical in its content and ultimately whether we are using the liturgy to worship in spirit and truth. No matter what the liturgy is, and liturgy, by the way, just means like the way we do church, like the order things are put in and why they're put in that order. No matter what the liturgy is, whether it's a plain liturgy, a simple liturgy, complex, high symbolic liturgy, it can be formalized and externalized so that it is corrupted to the point that God despises it. And we seek out the forms of worship that, as we seek out the forms of worship that please God, we must be vigilant lest we fall into formalism or externalism. So basically what Sproul is saying is this. Every church that gathers will have some kind of a liturgy. We'll have some sort of an order of service. We'll have something. Um, so why not then put some thought into what it is that we're doing? Why not put some thought into why we put things in the order? One of the things you have to do as you're thinking about that, though, is to understand the history of the way church has sort of always worked. We don't have time for like a whole thing. But the very early church, the first liturgy we read is the church got together at the beginning of Acts at a place called Solomon's Porch. That's why we're called the porch, right? At Solomon's Porch to listen to the apostles preaching. We don't know exactly what else they did. Did they sing? You know, it's not really spelled out. Later, the church started meeting in houses. We see that in the book of Acts with meals. Meals were a big part of the early church. Teaching, singing. One of the things that we don't do that they did was they met almost every day, the early church, right? Then I'm going to jump through a whole bunch of stuff. If you know anything about church, you get to like the medieval church. And by the time you get to the medieval church, uh, the church service happened in Latin. So imagine if you showed up to church every week and we were doing church in a language you didn't understand and nobody knew what was going on. And then the Reformation happened. And in the Reformation, they thought, man, we got to change a bunch of this stuff. So they went back to native languages. They tried to make church more participatory. Right? We want people to participate in what's happening. Um, and then that's how church was for a long time. It was very formal, Reformation churches. Um, they always fought. Some of the churches would only sing psalms. You know what I mean? We don't have extra worship songs. It's only the psalms. And it was very structured and very formal. And then this guy came along called Charles Finney, named Charles Finney. And he was a real turkey. And what Charles Finney, he was the tent revival guy back in the, I want to say 1700s, but it might have been the early 1800s. But he came along and he was the one who thought, I can manipulate people with emotions and emotional kind of pitches, and I can get anybody to walk. He invented the walking down the aisle sort of stuff. And so church, what happened, though, was it moved from something that the Reformation thought was something we all get together and do, and Charles Finney moved it to now church is like a show. It's something you show up, and you're not really participating in. Um, do you guys know the band Bifrost Arts? It's like a worship band. They're pretty good. Uh, this guy, Isaac Wardell, who's like the leader of Bifrost Arts, he has this uh, illustration picture he uses where he says that, look, there's two kinds of churches. Some churches are concert halls, and you show up and you don't participate in a concert, right? Nobody ever goes to a concert and then goes home, and somebody says, how was the show? And you go, we were really great, right? No, you say Jimmy Eat World was great, because they were, by the way, or... Uh, dashboard or, you know, whatever. Anyway, you say these ba the band was great. The other type of church, he says, is a banquet hall. At a banquet, it's like a communal gathering where everybody shows up and participates, right? You sit, you talk, you're a part of what, if you go to dinner at somebody's house, you're a part of the whole process. You're not just going and sit. If somebody showed up to a dinner party and sat in the corner, didn't eat anything and watched everybody eat without saying anything, we would go, oh, that guy's a serial killer. Right? He's nuts. That's the second type of church. You're supposed to participate. You're supposed to be part of it. And that's what I want our church to be, something we do together, something we all participate in, and ultimately, though, something that forms us, something that makes us into different people slowly over time. And the way this happens, though, is with rhythm. Right? I don't mean drums rhythm, although you guys want to play drums real quick? I could, no, okay, we're not going to do that but not that kind of rhythm, just like the rhythm of life. We're all people of rhythm. And as you do something over and over again, it changes you. It, it forms you. Um, muscle memory and sports, think about that, right? Like I remember being in high school and playing basketball and just taking literally thousands of free throws because I always did this when I wasn't thinking about it, I did this when I shot a free throw. I had the muscle memory and turn it like this, right? I had to straighten up my elbow and I just did it thousands of times. 
so that when I was in a game and I wasn't thinking about it, my elbow just naturally went in and did that. Or have you ever noticed that watching the same TV show like 100 times shapes your sense of humor? You know why I'm always quoting Seinfeld in The Office and whatever. You know why? Because that's what I do. I just watch Seinfeld in The Office and Star Trek over and over and over again, and it's shaped my sense of humor. When I was a kid, you know what show it was? The reason I'm sarcastic and mean like I am is Roseanne. I watched Roseanne my whole childhood constantly, and I wanted to be Darlene, and she's funny. And that really shaped my sense of humor. Um, this is what happens. Another illustration is like, you know, as you spend time with somebody, you guys all start to act like each other. Have you ever noticed that? Um, the, the one I always talk about is my brother, Ben. He was, um, he lived in Romania for two or three years. And Romanians have this thing where they end a sentence with, is it no or yes? They say no, right? Like uh, they go, that was a good meal, no? I think they do both. I think, or that was a good meal, yes? Right? We don't talk like that at all. And Ben came back from Romania, and he kept saying, oh, that was a good lunch, yes? I was like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking like a Romanian guy? Or the other thing they do, and he said it once, and I never let him hear the end of it, is we say uh, $2.50. They say $2.50, <laughs> right? And he, so he started doing that because he just spent time with Romanian people, and that turned him into a little Romanian guy. Uh, so the same is true with your spirituality. Too many followers of Jesus put in zero effort, and then expect to wake up spiritual giants. And that's what we think. That's the way it works. And that completely fails to take into account that we're like the people from Ezekiel chapter 12. We have the same hard heart that they do. Earlier, everybody giggled when I called them a bunch of idiots. But here's the thing. That's you. That's me, right? We're all just as stupid as these guys. We're all built with the same hardness of heart. Your default mode... The default mode of your heart is always going to do, is always going to go like this. I'm going to do what's easiest and whatever pleases the sinful part of my heart. That's where you're going to default if you don't put some effort into it. So what do we do? How do you get through that? How do you get through that hardness of heart? We have to build gospel rhythm into our lives. That includes a lot of different areas, but the one I want to talk about that I'm talking about specifically today is church, church gatherings. Our liturgy here at the porch and just in church is supposed to take the gospel story every week, even the uncomfortable parts, and form us into people of Jesus, right? The gospel is a story. It's not a list of facts. It's a story of what God has done in the world. He made the world. We ruined it. He redeemed us, and then he's putting us with hope on a path to put everything back together, and that's the gospel story, and our lives are constantly bombarded with other stories, And so as a church, what we're supposed to do is this. God's people, we gather together and we tell the story over and over and over again. So that all of a sudden, without even realizing it, we're speaking the gospel. We're breathing out the gospel. We're saying $2.50 without even realizing that that's what we're doing. And we do this every Sunday for our entire lives. And this gospel rhythm and, uh, and showing up and preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again, it forms us into gospel people, not the kind of people with hard hearts like Eve, right? I said this earlier. In in Eden, Adam and Eve, they listened to and believed a different story. But because because of the gospel story, what happens is God makes you new. When you come to Jesus, he gives you the heart of flesh. And he says, you don't have to be a hard-hearted person anymore. And he creates this new people, and we're a people of truth, and we're supposed to live out that truth. And so when we're tempted to look at his truth and go, no, I don't think so, every week we show up in church, and the liturgy of the church, the way that we rehearse the gospel story together, pushes back on our temptation to look at God and say, I don't think so. So we come to church, and we say, but Lord, I've sinned. And the liturgy of church says, yeah, I know. God says, my grace is sufficient. Lord, look at me. How could anybody love me? Well, because my grace is enough. Lord, there's so many people who are better than me. Yeah, I know. We read in Psalm 139. I know everything about you. It's a good thing you're saved by grace and not how attractive you are. Lord, that person wronged me. I need to get them back. Yeah, they did. But my grace is enough for them too. My grace should flow through you to them. Lord, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. 
yeah, but my grace is all you need. And every week we gather and we bring our hard hearts into this little room and then we act out the gospel story. Philip Ryken said this, what will transform us is not information. We're not here just to find out the cool, weird, historical facts from the book of Ezekiel. That's not what we're after. A lot of idiots could show up and do that. Right? We're here for heart change. What will transform us is not information for the mind, but formation of the heart through the liturgy of the church. Now, when we planted the porch a while ago, I spent a bunch of time thinking about this reading books, talked to a bunch of pastors and leaders, um, and what I really wanted was to build a structure that tells the gospel story as we go through a Sunday service. And if you've ever actually looked at one of these things, I know a lot of you probably haven't looked at this in a while, um, but these are the postcards we have in the back. And you'll notice that our, our, our church service is broken up into different sections. Right? We start with adoration and worship. We always start with who God is and why we love him because of all the great stuff he's done for us. Then we move into family life because we're a family that God, the gospel has created us as a people of God. Then we have a time of instruction. That's where we are in the service right now. We do the New City Catechism. We read scripture. We study scripture. And then we respond to that with singing. We respond to the truth of the instruction with singing and worship. And then we remember the gospel story specifically as we confess, take communion together, and then we close with worship. And the whole point of this, and then you know, we close with worship and the benediction where we're commissioned to go out. Right? Um, <clears throat> this is also in the... Um, what are we calling it again? Booklet that you have on your phone there um, every week as you see that. You see there's little sections and they all have different colors and the colors line up so you know where we are in the story. We're supposed to preach the gospel to ourselves as we go through this. So real quick, in just like two minutes, let me give you the how we can apply this to our lives. This idea of liturgy that forms us. Here's what I want you to do. One, think about the value you place on Sunday gatherings. Um, Americans are the busiest people on the planet. It, like, I mean, we're not really, but we pretend to be. You know what I mean? It's like, have you ever said to somebody, how's your week? And just really proud, they were like, I had nothing to do. No, right? What do we always do? It's almost like a badge of honor. Oh, man, I've been so busy. You know, it's like you're a better person if you're busy. And it, yeah, and so let's be real, right? We also live in the greatest city on earth. I just went to Phoenix. Let me tell you about Phoenix. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Uh, it's no San Francisco, that's for sure. Uh, we live in the greatest city on earth, and there's a lot to do here. We live a few hours from Redwoods, Tahoe, Beach, beautiful places. And one of the things I've noticed about Christians in the Bay Area is we're all kind of committed to Sunday gatherings. As long as we don't have to go skiing this week, or, you know, and I'm not saying you should never do that stuff. What I'm saying is you should be intentional about this idea. When you show up to church week after week with intentionality, what happens is there's no week, usually, there's no one Sunday that's going to completely transform your life. Right? Just like there's no one meal that's going to feed you forever. Right? But you got to eat dinner every night. Or you got to keep eating through your whole life. And that's what church is. It's spiritual nourishment. This liturgy is us showing up and you're, you're surrounded all week by stories that aren't the gospel, and you show up on a Sunday, and you should be able to breathe a sigh of relief and go, yes, this is what's ultimately true. And so just think about the importance you place, the value you place on Sunday gatherings, right? Why are you missing? How do you plan vacations? That sort of stuff. Two, um, don't judge church on emotional impact. This is a big one. Uh, your emotions are fickle. You know, emotions are a part of us. They're inescapable. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're fickle and stupid. And our emotions go up and down and up and down. And Charles Finney was right when he said we can manipulate people's emotions. And they think they're being spiritual. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves in church is when churches do this. They mess with people's emotions, and then they tell them if you felt something, that's because you're spiritual. And that's not really true. Um, uh, I'll read you this quote. I don't have it up here. There's a guy, his name is Mike Cosper. He wrote a book that, um, did we put a link in the thing, Kayla? Yeah, there's a link to this book in your booklet there. Um, it's called Rhythms of Grace. Mike Cosper says this. We have to see that there's a difference between a service that's compelled by a hunger to display the gospel and a service that's compelled by a desire to stir up people's emotions through other means. We have to see that the church needs to be equipped for 
far more than emotional catharsis, right? This is so true. This is key. You're not coming to church to be entertained. Sometimes, like earlier in that last song, I'm going to miss a chord, right? It was a B minor. I missed it, okay? I'm going to miss some chords. Sometimes I'm going to mess up the singing because I don't know the song very well. Sometimes Josue's going to play with the wrong capo in the place, and he's going to switch it real fast. <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. This is not the greatest church in the world, but the thing is we're not trying to entertain you. That's not what we're doing here. We're trying to get, this is not a show. This is a banquet where we come together and we feast on the gospel story. And you're participating in what we're doing here. So don't just judge church on how did I feel when I left. Judge church on did I hear the gospel? Did I participate in the preaching of the gospel to myself? And here's the third one. Don't, uh, this is like just building on what I said. Don't come to a concert, come to a banquet. You know, same thing like I just said. I could have made that one point actually now that I'm thinking about it. But, right, you're, you're not coming here to be engaged. You're coming here. I want you to participate, right, when we're doing things. Your singing is just as important when we're doing the music as my singing and Josue's playing and my playing. Right? What you do while you sing is just as much of the part of worship. Your reading aloud is just as important as when whoever stands here and reads, reads aloud. Right? When you engage when I'm teaching, when you confess, when you participate in communion, all of this together is us showing up as a bunch of hard-hearted morons saying we need to get together and reenact the gospel story together. So the way I want to end then, that's the end. The way I want to end is, I want to read this quote. So, okay, here's what happened. I was writing this sermon, and I picked out this quote. And I was like, whew, boy, that's a good quote. That's money in the bank right there. And then I was looking at this, and I was like, oh, that's the quote we put on here three years ago. And I haven't looked at this since, you know, uh, the welcome. So I'm going to read it. This is the quote from that Mike Cosper book. Theologian Jeremy Begbie, maybe calls the gathering, the church gathering, the Sunday gathering. I love this. He calls it an echo from the future. That's so brilliant. I wish I was smart and I could come up with smart things like that, you know, but it's never happened yet, so I don't think it's going to. But he calls it an echo from the future, a foretaste of something we'll see, come, uh, we'll see come to fruition when Christ returns and all things are made new, a not yet life that we taste in part already. Today... On Sunday afternoon, we gather in exile, in, in the world, but not of it. But one day, the exile will end. God will rebuild creation, and not one corner of it will be stained by sin and rebellion. But until then, we have these momentary and imperfect glimpses and foretastes as we gather, we hear the word, and we respond together. And this is true of our church, it's true of every church. As flawed and imperfect as these gatherings are, they're the most truthful moments of our week, an outpost of the kingdom of God and a foretaste of eternity.